Hi, I'm Jay from San Diego. I'm Chase from Seattle. I'm Jamie from New York City. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. It's easy. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. Simon Amstel thought that hosting a TV show would solve all of his problems. So he worked really hard to make that happen. And so when I was on television and still sad and lonely, there was this feeling like, what has this journey been about? What... What, what have I been doing? And so if you are giving up so much of yourself in order for this work that you are doing, which is not bringing all the satisfaction that I thought it would, then I need to be making different decisions. <laughs> it's bullseye. This week, my interview with the delightful stand-up comic Simon Amstel. On TV, he's prodded at the powers that be. He's even caused a few walk-offs. If you can't say these things on television, you know, where can you say them? But despite the escapades, Amstel spends much of his time on stage and off looking inward at himself. His self-doubt got so deep that he went on a shamanic quest to South America to find answers. Really. Plus Brian K. Vaughn on his comic book series Saga. He's not even ten issues in, but he's already created a deep rich new world. Usually, you know, when you're introduced to a comic, it's not issue number one or this fresh start. You get Amazing Spider-Man number 251 or something, and you're sort of tossed headlong into this fully formed universe. I was just so fascinated by it. Plus, Jordan Morris tells us what's up and what's down in our universe, the good old US of A. All this week on Bullseye, let's go. Every week on Bullseye, we invite culture critics onto our show to point us towards stuff that's worth our time. Right now, I'm joined by Jason Kotke on his website, kotke.org. He scours the web for things that are strange, surprising, and above all, fascinating. He's going to share a few of his newest finds. Thanks for being here, Jason. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Jesse. How are you? Uh, you know, I'm holding on. I'm excited to talk about these picks, especially this first one. Unexplained sounds. <laughs> this is this is the kind of thing that you run into when you spend too much time on Wikipedia. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's uh, as I was reading through them, I I was reminded, you know, of the uh, like the whole UFO thing. You know, I think pe- people have camera phones now uh, everywhere, and nobody's spotted a UFO for years and years. So I think you know you got to glom onto something else, and you know there's unexplained sounds. So that's you know that's a good place to start. I want to play the bloop, a very powerful and low frequency sound, several times louder than the loudest recorded animal, the blue whale. <laughs> we know it's not an animal, Jason, but what could it be? Well. It's funny, since I posted this on my site, the Wikipedia entry has been updated, and apparently they know what the bloop is now. Oh, what is it? A lot of these unexplained noises, especially the ones, well, the ones in the, in the ocean are uh, icebergs. It's like, apparently icebergs make a lot of strange noises. Depends on what they ate for lunch. Yeah, exactly. So the bloop turned out to be uh, the sound generated by ice quakes in icebergs. Um, when icebergs break up, they... You know, they make all sorts of strange noises, apparently. And in more explained territory, uh, you're also recommending this new PBS show called David Chang's The Mind of a Chef. People probably know David Chang is the chef behind the Momofuku restaurants. He's a sort of experimentalist chef. It's a little bit of a weird show. Tell me about what kind of show it is, because David Chang is a little bit of a weird chef. I don't know. It reminds me of his restaurants. It's very casual, but also very... I don't know if rigorous is the right word, but he, you know, I think second generation Korean American and, uh, you know, he uses influences from all over the place in his, in his cooking and he's super steeped in pop culture and, uh, he was a golfer when he was a kid. So he's got all these weird kind of influences that came together to create this kind of casual, but really good food, you know, kind of empire, I guess. When I was in Japan as a kid, I became completely obsessed with ramen noodles, which at the time were very difficult to find in any decent form and still can only be found in sort of passable form in San Francisco, where I'm from. And David Chang is a devotee of ramen noodles, but not just the 
semi-fancy Japanese-Chinese food version, also the kind that comes in an envelope and costs 12 cents at your local big box store. When he was a kid, apparently, he used to eat instant ramen by the truckload, apparently. Basically, freeze-dried vegetables packed with MSG. There's no way it's not delicious. You know, he was like eight or nine years old, so he didn't, like, boil the water and put the ramen in there and let it cook and then put the flavor packet in. He would just take the little brick of noodles and sprinkle the flavor packet on the noodles and then, you know, eat it like a cracker. I might have had like a Capri Sun in my left hand and I would sprinkle this, the seasoning baguette, just like so, and then I would go like this. The first episode of the show is actually all about ramen. It is. He goes to Japan uh, uh, with a, uh, a friend of his and they eat ramen in a, in a few different places. And then he also cooks uh, an Italian dish with just cheese, butter, oil, black pepper, and then he uses the ramen as the, as the pasta, basically. It's pretty cool. You can check out David Chang's The Mind of a Chef on PBS, or uh, you can watch a number of episodes free online at pbs.org. You can find the link to Unexplained Sounds in Wikipedia or by visiting kotki.org. Uh, there's also a link on our website at maximumfun.org. Jason Kotki, thank you for joining us, as always. All right, thank you, Jesse. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. When you watch the British comedian Simon Amstel on stage, you see a man turning himself inside out. His performance is a list of sources and symptoms of existential ennui and a story about trying to solve it. It's a little like Woody Allen, which is sort of surprising because for nearly 10 years, Amstel made his living on television shows skewering pop music celebrities. He hosted an interview show called Pop World and a panel show called Nevermind the Buzzcocks that made him famous in the UK, then followed them up with a sitcom about a TV host who quits his job because he's uncomfortable making fun of people and moves in with his grandma. With Simon Amstel, it's all complicated. Lucky for us, the result of all this twisting and turning is a funny, humane performer and a funny, humane performance. Amstel's in the U.S. performing his solo show, Numb, and his stand-up special, Do Nothing, premiered here on BBC America. Here he is on the stand-up stage, unpacking his inability to be in the moment while visiting Paris. I was in Paris recently with a new group of people, one of which was quite a sort of kooky, interesting girl. Although in hindsight, not that interesting. (laughs) I always get fooled. I was thinking, oh, she seems fascinating. Is she Simon? Or does she just have short hair? <laughs> Completely fascinated. Ended up thinking, oh, I'll talk to her for the rest of my life. Bored after ten minutes. You should grow your hair and stop misleading people. <laughs> so she suggests at about, at about three in the morning that we all run up the Champs-Élysées to the Arc de Triomphe. And I guess telling you about that now sounds sort of exciting and fun, but at the time, I just thought, well, why would we do that? And then, and then what's the point? And then when we get there, then what will we do with our lives? And I'm sort of analysing what the point of it is, and we live that way, and it seems a long way to go. And everyone else is just not analysing. They're just running, and I'm running as well because of the peer pressure, because I'm fun. <laughs> And we're all running and running. And everyone else, I think, is just at one with the moment, at one with joy, at one with the universe. And I'm there, as I'm running, thinking, well, this will probably make a good memory. (laughs) Simon Amstel, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Hello. Thank you very much for having me. (laughs) You already sound worried, Simon. Yeah. Well, it's quite... Well, it's weird listening to a whole introduction of yourself and then listening to a clip of yourself and then you know, in preparation for talking about yourself. I read somewhere that that it was your, like, life's ambition to appear on television, even as a small child. Yes, I was a very weird child, and uh, that's all I wanted. That was all that was important. Was it a particular kind of appearing on television? Yes, there was a program in the UK called The Big Breakfast where um, it was kind of anarchic, and you would see the crew members, and it felt like anything could happen. And I, it looked like the most fun you could possibly have uh, hosting a show like that. And so that's just all I wanted to do. I, I want to I play this clip of the first time that you appeared on television. This is you oh, God. As, oh, Jesus. <laughs> as a 13-year-old on a show called Games Master. Oh, wow. Okay. Good luck. 
everyone. Okay, we've got to get through here. It's the Essex All-Stars in yellow. All right, I'll get it. Okay, tell us your names, guys. I'm Simon. Simon? And I'm Robert. Robert? I'm Matthew. And you're Matthew. Uh, so which one's the team captain? That's me. Simon, you're the team captain. So right. how are your team going to fare? There, we are going to do absolutely brilliant. We're going to do better than any team here. We are unstoppable. We are the Essex All-Stars. <laughs> you were demonstrating a lot of conviction at an early age. It's so upsetting. It's so upsetting. Isn't it? Isn't it upsetting? <laughs> I found it delightful, Simon. Oh, no. It's really... Uh, I mean, that was, that's, what I, that's what I was. I mean, I was just desperate. How did you get, how did you get on that show as a 13-year-old? A guy actually came to our school and uh, from the production company and just needed young people, and so I ended up auditioning. I knew I wasn't very good at playing the games, but what I felt was the guy who came to our school said that they would base their decisions on who they picked on uh, gameplay ability and personality, and I thought, I will, I'll have to have a personality then. <laughs> and so I sort of, uh, and yeah, I guess I just thought, I also, you know, I used to go to a Saturday morning stage school, where uh, the advice was just to be loud. <laughs> that was the, <laughs> and so I so I did that. So I was just loud and annoying because I thought then you are memorable. Can, can you tell me a little bit about what Pop World was? This is a show that you started hosting as a as a teenager, right? I was, no, I was twenty one. I started hosting stuff when I was eighteen, but this show I was twenty one and. Uh, uh, go. What do you want to know about it? How should I describe what, it? What kind of thing was it? Because I've never, I've never seen it, and I'm curious. If you imagine, I'm trying to think what the. So this is not really an equivalent, but you know TRL that yeah, used sure. to be on MTV. Is it still MTV? Yeah. Okay. So imagine that, but good. <laughs> <laughs> and when I say good, that's kind of that's mean. What I mean is, uh, uh, imagine the presenters not being reverential imagine them not really caring about the music imagine their their only interest being in trying to burst the bubble of the brand that was trying to be sold we just did silly things on it we sort of interviewed people with megaphones you know across a car park rather than sitting down with them and you know <laughs> treating them with the respect that they felt they deserved was that important to you that idea of of popping bubbles yeah, I felt because it felt like everyone else just treated celebrity with enormous respect, and it felt like uh, it didn't, it didn't, it didn't feel real. It felt boring. If I, I and I wanted, it was that we were only interested in truth. We were just searching for the truth, Jesse. <laughs> we didn't want to upset anyone. Was it weird for you when you started doing stand up and you were? known for hosting this you know television program for teenage uh lmfao enthusiasts or whatever the uh 10 years ago equivalent of that is uh yeah there was it was quite tricky so i started doing my first stand-up gig was when i was 14 when i was that weird child and then I uh, did a few uh, weird gigs until I was about 18 and then retired because I got this hosting job. And I thought, well, it's, there's no need to do any of this stand-up comedy anymore. And then at 21, I felt the urge to return. Uh, I, so I came out of retirement and then it was quite odd because I was, I was half, half, maybe half or a third of the people in each audience would have an idea of who I was a bit. And it wasn't really who I was in terms of stand-up, so it was quite that was quite tricky, and also I was still finding my own voice, so I didn't know who I was. The whole thing was very difficult for about five years, and then I kind of figured out how to do it a bit. When you started to f- find your voice, what was it? It was sad. <laughs> it turned out I was very sad. That <laughs> um, uh, I think my clown is this sort of curious uh, student kind of guy. I'm sort of... I think I work quite well when there's a question mark at the end of a sentence rather than... Uh, like, I'm not good if there's an exclamation mark at the end. I'll, I'll, I will not be funny with an exclamation mark. I learned that from writing the sitcom, that my character, uh, as opposed to the other characters who would make uh, bold, shocking statements... I was much funnier if I was asking a question that was a bit off for some reason. 
but these things can't be analysed too much, Jesse Thorne. Otherwise, we, you know, they die. My guest on Bullseye is the comedian Simon Amstel. He was known for cutting celebrity guests down to size while hosting the BBC game show Nevermind the Buzzcocks. His stand-up comedy is still sharp and probing, but now he takes himself to task. His new stand-up show, Numb, returns to the States early next year. I was um, in the UK not that long ago and just flipping through the TV channels, and I'm watching this television program that's really quite funny, but I can't figure out why it's hosted by Alice Cooper. Oh, yes. And um, it's this show called Nevermind the Buzzcocks. And after I went to see your stand-up show, I looked you up on the Internet, and I found out that until it was hosted by apparently a rotating group of Alice Cooper-like people, (laughs) um, it was was hosted by you. And and I want to play a clip of you hosting this show. This is a pop music panel show. Uh, sort of a game show where jokes are the most important thing, a very popular format in the UK. Um, this is you uh, interviewing one of the contestants slash guests, Jermaine Jackson. How many children have you personally got, Jermaine Jackson? Seven. Now, I read a thing recently. Tell me if this is correct or incorrect. Go ahead. You had two children with your second wife. They are called Jafar and Your Majesty. Your second wife had previously had two children with your brother, Randy. That's true. Was that a bit awkward? <laughs> if, if you call it that, yes. If I was one of your kids, let's say I was Your Majesty, yes. and that would, that would be fun for me. Um, <laughs> my half-brothers are also my cousins, which is fine. <laughs> what about Michael? Has he ever done something weird? <laughs> I mean, that's really funny, Simon. Um, but that was before Michael died, by the way. Okay, that's that's good. Um, it, that's it, it's also. I mean, it's it's pretty brutal. Well, go, go on. In what way? Why? Well, because poor Jermaine Jackson. It seems like a sweet guy to me. Mm, he was very sweet. Um, it, 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 certainly, it's ridiculous that he named one of his children Your Majesty. <laughs> I mean that is I mean that is on that is absolutely ridiculous. I don't think anyone could argue with that. But you know, uh you 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 put him through it. I suppose I mean I I just read that stuff about him and so that popped out as interesting that that he married somebody that his brother had already married is that what happened? <laughs> <laughs> he married his brother's ex-wife, I think. Right, so that happened in the world. So that's interesting. And uh, I want, I, mean, I genuinely want to know in that moment, as well as wanting the audience to laugh and have a lovely time, I genuinely want to know if it was awkward, I suppose. I genuinely want to know how everyone feels and how, what was there a discussion about that. And, and you know, I'm, I am poking around the areas of life I find quite interesting. So to me, it's like a great opportunity. If, if, you, can't, if you can't say these things on television... You know, where can you say them? Did you find it difficult to ask those kinds of questions? Um, you'd have to time it quite well. You'd have, to, you'd have to find the right opening. But once, once you were in, I found it quite difficult to not ask them. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like if, if I was talking to Jermaine Jackson... You have to remember also, though, we're sat there behind these, you know, shiny desks. You know, we're on a TV show. It's all being filmed. And uh, it's a show. We're making a show. And to me, they're not there just as people. They are there with their brands, their haircuts, their clothes, their back catalogue, their biog. There's a whole load of stuff there to be deconstructed. I'm not just there with a person in a room it's it's it, it you know there's a lot of there's a lot of baggage there's a lot of stuff to have fun with it's it's but i realized in the end they were human beings and maybe i shouldn't have been doing it <laughs> <laughs> when you i mean you had a you had a few sort of famous incidents um with uh frankly people who are only celebrities in the uk and so i can't play the clips because it wouldn't make any sense to anyone mm-hmm. but um you had a few you had a few incidents did you feel like did you feel like there was this burden on you that all of a sudden you were the guy that causes incidents 
And if you weren't like deflating people, then you weren't doing your job. Well, that's why I left. So I only did it for three seasons, and then I felt like what at first was a surprising, shocking thing to be happening on a show where really we should just be, you know, enjoying pop music. Suddenly it was the expectation that I was the guy who said naughty things to people. And it would have looked eventually like bullying rather than a guy in the middle of a show who didn't really know what he was doing, which I was at first. So I I left. That was it. After a break, Simon Amstel tells the story of his shamanic quest to South America. Because I made him. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and PRI. Public Radio International. Hey, podcast listeners, it's Jesse. I just wanted to let you know about two places that you can find me in public this coming week. If you're in New York City, on Thursday, December 6th, I'm going to be doing my talk, Make Your Thing, for free at the Etsy Holiday Shop. That'll be, uh, well, as of this recording, we don't have the exact time, but I I think it'll be around 6 or 6.30. The Etsy Holiday Shop is in Soho. You can find more information at etsy.com slash holiday shop. And also that afternoon, I'm going to be doing some workshops with my friend Dallas Penn from the Internet Celebrities and our friend Kevin Allison from the MaximumFun.org podcast, Risk. All of that is free, so find more information at etsy.com slash holiday shop. And if you are on the other coast in Los Angeles, on December 9th, which is a Sunday, I am going to be doing a sort of sample holiday sale for the Put This On Gentlemen's Association. So stop by Don Vie Shoes, uh, Don Vie Shoes, which is on uh, La Brea at, gosh, second, I think. Um, me and uh, Jordan Jesse Go producer Brian Fernandez will be there from noon to five. Uh, selling pocket squares and uh, Raul, the owner of Don Vie, will be uh, offering special discounts on shoes and you can come by and say hi there's free beers, get a holiday gift um, it's going to be a lot of fun uh, just stop by and say hi even if you're not going to buy any pocket squares stop by uh, Don Vie on Sunday the 9th um, you can find the address of Don Vie by typing Don Vie into the internet oh Julia's showing it to me it's at First and La Brea between First and Beverly, um, Don Vie Shoes will be there. Free beer. Did I mention that? Free beer. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the comedian Simon Amstel. His new stand-up show, Numb, focuses on his vulnerability and his tendency towards introspection. Amstel will return to the States to tour the show early next year. You made this, this sitcom, which I watched a, a couple episodes of, it, and it's very funny. Oh, thank you. Um, and, and in this sitcom, you play uh, essentially a, a riff on yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe you could describe your character on the show and, and compare that character to you in real life. Well, so uh, it came from... There's a few things. How do we begin? Okay, well, let's start with me. So each, so when I left that show, and the, the show that I left before, I left it with the same feeling, like there must be... Like all I wanted as a child was to be on television, and then once that had been achieved, and I felt that it would solve all my problems, that I could never be sad or lonely if I was on television. And so when I was on television and still sad and lonely... There was this feeling like, what has this journey been about? What, what, what have I been doing? It's been really hard work each week on these shows to sort of make them funny and make them surprising. It's such, it takes so much out of you and it's all encompassing and there's no time for anything else. And so if you are giving up so much of yourself in order for this um, work that you are doing, which is not bringing all the satisfaction that I thought it would, then I need to be making different decisions. And so, and because this character, who's essentially me, is quite extreme, uh, there was a feeling like I just have to quit this and ultimately find a cave in India where I can just sit and meditate. And that's that will bring me contentment. Rather than all this seeking validation and approval and love, I, I just need to find it internally, probably in India or Thailand. Just I just need to be on my own in a cave. And uh, in the sitcom, 
It's that character in contrast to the family who love him being on television. It's their whole world, especially the mother. It's everything. It's everything that he's on television. And so when he comes in in the first episode and says, I'm going to quit, it's, uh, you know, it's what it's 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 an outrageous idea. I think it's interesting to me, um, your show that I saw live here in Los Angeles recently, Numb, is, I I mean, I I said it's about existential ennui, and and it is, but it's really about connecting with people and the world around you in an actual way. And, um, you know, it's interesting to me that you, you chose as a career, you know, starting from when you were very young, this performance of connection, which is, you know, doing a funny interview. I mean, there's no, you know, you are performing, having a connection with another person. Yeah. Um, performing, performing is the word. So I really learned how to do that very well. I learned how to interview a person in front of a camera and didn't really, because that, that took up my whole life. That show was like every week of the year, that first pop show that I did. And I just spent my life doing that and didn't really learn how to have actual conversations with people <laughs> until recently. <laughs> I mean, that's, uh, I, it's, it's nice that you're laughing about that. It's very sad. <laughs> I know. I know. Well, if you don't laugh, you cry, right? <laughs> I want to ask you something that I, I wondered about. And um, yeah, it's entirely possible I'm off base. But was was part of your discomfort with your i mean look all adolescents are uncomfortable with themselves um but p- was part of your trying to find a relationship to others and especially peers uh, about the fact that that you were gay well that yeah that must come into it and just doesn't feel like it's relevant to my life now but certainly when i was 13 and had to I felt I had to keep that a secret until I was 21. Certainly, that comes into this feeling of disconnection that I talk about because while other people are, you know, learning how to kiss people for the first time, I'm pretending I don't want to kiss anyone. Yeah, another thing that I thought was really interesting that that came up in your show was that you are, for all practical purposes, a, a teetotaler. Yes. And... um that's, that's mainly the problem, I think. I think if I just drank more, everything would be fine. <laughs> that's what I was going to say. I mean, I think I, I, I will say that I, I, also, I also don't drink, but I just think that a lot of teenagers and young adults who are really uncomfortable in social situations, which is to say almost all of them, uh, just drink. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I used to. When I was 18, I did, I did drink, yeah, for, for a long time in terrible clubs for years. And it didn't make it any better. Those terrible clubs stayed terrible. Why did you stop? I really... I uh, I read a book called Taming the Monkey Mind about Buddhism. And uh, one of the things was that uh, Buddhists tend to not drink and they don't eat meat. And the meat was quite easy to give up. And then I really wanted to give up alcohol as well. Because I... Uh, why did I want to do that? <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> why was that? I think I just liked this book and I liked the... Oh, yeah. I was on a plane, maybe at the same time as reading this Taming the Monkey Mind book, and I saw a monk meditating a few seats away from me, and he looked to be the most calm, content human being I'd ever seen, and I, I thought, I want whatever he is having. And so... I thought, let's give up alcohol, see how that goes. But I couldn't do it because I was still single and I was at an age where you needed to go out and dance and talk to people. And that was really not going to happen if I wasn't drunk. And so I had to drink. And then I ended up in a relationship for about two years and I thought, oh, I can give up alcohol now. This is great. And so I did. And that all worked out. And then when that relationship ended, I thought, oh, no, I'm going to have to drink again. And I tried it and had such a terrible hangover. I thought, oh, my goodness, this is horrific. This is poison i can't do this anymore and so that was that so now i don't drink my guest on bullseye is the comedian simon amstel his new stand-up show numb returns to the states early next year do you find that when you talk to people in real life and i saw you doing this quite graciously 
um, after your show the other night here in Los Angeles uh, to what looked like some really serious fans. Um, do you find it a burden or a relief that you're going into a lot of social interactions with people who are already knowledgeable about your your public persona? It's a relief because um, it's like that thing I say in the show about uh, some people when I meet new people and if they don't realize I'm that I'm very funny, then you know they they look a bit. Uh, <laughs> upset because of the things I say sometimes are a bit peculiar or aggressive and then I have to reassure them oh no don't worry I'm professionally funny it's that thing of if you if 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 your uh, personality has already been established like like it's like don't worry this is just this is I'm, this is what I'm supposed to be like don't you know this is fine this is absolutely fine otherwise people think well, this guy is just an awful human being we have to walk away from him but if the uh you know a fame if you are a famous person then it means that um it's been established that who you are is a good thing and so people aren't as concerned people are, oh this oh he, he's so great this this weird awkward guy that well we should we should really be friends with him rather than oh this is oh my this is awful is there anyone else we can talk to <laughs> your um stand up is very internally driven and part of what the story is about both in your show do nothing and in your current stage show numb is essentially a, a search within yourself and and a search for outside means of of correcting the problems that you perceive in yourself and i want to play a clip from uh, your special do nothing um, in this clip, you are uh, you're basically looking for for physical sources of of your emotional pain. And I feel special in some way if I feel broken. If I'm broken, there's a journey to be healed. There's a journey to be fixed. I feel like I'm an interesting, unique human being. In the meaninglessness of it all, I feel unique, I feel special. I like that I've got an osteopath appointment once a month where I go because I've got bad posture, something happened in my past, and I guess this man is healing me each month, bringing me some sort of neutral state, some pure neutral state. And I asked him, because he's quite a sensitive, sweet man, why, why did I end up with bad posture? Is it because when I was a kid I was quite shy? I ended up trying to make myself invisible from the other children, end up all hunched over and scared. And even though what I do now is extrovert, still inside, I'm the same scared, crying child. I said, what's wrong with me? Why would that happen to me? What's wrong with me? And he said, you have very tight hamstrings. <laughs> Yeah, but isn't it more that I'm a genius recluse? Isn't that the... <laughs> no, the tendons behind your knees are quite restricted. Yeah, but isn't that just the physical manifestation of a tortured soul? No, it's your legs. <laughs> your show is so much about these sort of challenges you put before yourself in an effort to um, address these shortcomings that you see. One of them is a, a trip to South America. Ah, uh, yes. I was to, wondering if this may come up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think this is your Your Majesty. Uh, <laughs> uh, oh wow! Okay, go at, on. Go at, on. Well, I read. You know, when I when I saw in your show that you had gone on a shamanic quest to South America, I felt that was an interesting subject to explore. Yeah. Um, how do you even? Or did you just type shamanic quests into Google? <laughs> shamanic quest sounds so insane. <laughs> uh, a friend, an old school friend of mine, um, visited a shaman in Peru, and he drank this plant medicine uh, that the indigenous people have used for thousands of years to heal themselves. And he had the most incredible experience. He felt healed, and he looked so joyful when he told. This story, he looked like a, like a twelve year old kid, and I, I again like when I saw the monk on the plane, I thought that's I want some of that. That's what I need. I need that healing, and so I went, and that was that. No, hold on. That sorry, wasn't that, that was that. I sounded like I was trying to close it off there. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, that wasn't that. And so, I will now continue. Well, <laughs> did you did you just what do you do? Do you do you like get off the the plane in in Lima and just say take me to your shaman? 
<laughs> the shame. <laughs> yeah, I know it sounds nuts, but um, it really it, it helped. I don't know what to say to you. I mean, it, I didn't know if I'd be able to talk about it in stand up because I because I didn't want to make like fun of it, and I don't think I do. I think I do honor the experience, and I think I make fun of sort of myself and my personality within what was a very profound experience. The contrast between my myself as a sort of physical human and the Gosh, the, I don't know what even to, how to describe it with language, but the non-physical experience that I had. And I know it sounds a bit crazy, and I think it's probably, uh, you know, I talk, I've I found a way to talk about it in stand-up, and I haven't really found a way to talk about it in any other way that doesn't just <laughs> sound like a bit of an odd thing to have done. It was odd. It wasn't... Um, what happened wasn't rational. What happened can't really be explained, but it really helped and if it's the sort of thing that uh calls to you and i i really uh i really felt that i i kept hearing about it i kept hearing and they they say that it's a thing that calls to you and uh but i told this to someone and he said yeah i keep hearing the word skiing <laughs> so <laughs> but you know it was um it was pretty nuts but i think the world is pretty nuts and i think the things are considered normal in our culture are pretty nuts and so to do something that's a bit odd to me is sometimes the most rational thing you can do there you go what about that that wasn't bad right as a sentence yeah i mean go on what else do you want what I else do you know, want from me i don't know if i'm buying it okay but... what do what don't you buy about it and i'll try to uh but it's not a thing that it's okay to not it's i think it's not for everyone as well i got that from the experience that it really isn't for anyone uh sorry it really isn't for everyone it's a really extreme thing to do and i think it's for some people to do and to then use use what they gain from that experience to then um i don't know share their joy or something with the people who who haven't gone <laughs> how did you how did you feel different after you had gone through this this process of you know sitting in a circle with a bunch of people and drinking this medicine and throwing up and having some visions and that kind of thing uh, I felt healed. I felt genuinely like I'd been um, reset is probably quite a good word. I think what happens is we're born and then things happen to us and we make decisions, unconscious decisions about what we should do now in order to protect ourselves from things that could happen like that again. And so you end up with a load of defense mechanisms, personality traits, and you are they then, which uh, uh, for a while, they were things that were really helping you and protecting you. They then become their own kind of prison. And then you're sort of stuck. And in this experience of being in this rainforest, drinking this medicine, you kind of overcome fear because horrific traumatic things happen. Stuff from the past comes up and you realize that some of it wasn't your fault or you realize that your perception of it at the time was not accurate things like that and so you you eventually realize that everything's fine really and after that last ceremony there were four ceremonies and i just lied back on my bed and i said healing complete well simon i i sure appreciate you taking the time to be on bullseye it was really a pleasure to have you on the show was it interesting or funny enough Yes, absolutely. Okay, but you'll do an edit to make it even better, will you? Nick, my engineer, is shaking his head no. I think he's just going to leave the whole thing wrong. Oh, my God. Yeah, now he's nodding yes. Phew, thank goodness. We're actually... Nick, is it cool if we do one of those edits that makes it sound worse? (laughs) Okay, he says yes. (laughs) We're going to make you sound bad with the edit. That's what they do with most television, I've noticed. That's what they do. (laughs) Simon Amstel's most recent stand-up special is called Do Nothing. He's also been performing his stage show, Numb, in the United States lately. Simon, thanks again. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. As a modern man or woman, you need to know what's current, what's hip, what's hot. And in order to avoid ridicule, it's imperative that you stay away from what isn't current, what isn't hip, 
what's not. That's why correspondent Jordan Morris is here with his list of expertly ranked stuff. It's Jordan Ranks America. At number five this month, it's Your High School Girlfriend. You haven't talked in years, but from the looks of Facebook, she's having a pretty good time. I bet she'd be really impressed by how good you've gotten at lovemaking. Debuting at a strong number four, it's The Post Office. Sure, with email, the post office is becoming increasingly irrelevant. But check out that sweet rack of greeting cards. Holding strong at number three, it's your difficult cousin. This college sophomore will pep up Christmas dinner by demanding a vegan meal and yelling at your dad for not driving a hybrid. Thanks, difficult cousin. You make everything more yelly. Climbing fast at number two, it's Predators. Did you know they made a new sequel to the 1987 sci-fi classic Predator a few years ago? And it was actually pretty good? Catch it on cable today so we've got something to talk about the next time we're grabbing beers. Reigning benevolently at the top spot, it's Scrabble. Play this board game classic with friends to tell who in your group of friends is a real jerk when it comes to board games. From the bottom to the top, I'm Jordan Morris. Jordan Morris co-hosts the podcast Jordan Jesse Go with me. You can find that free in iTunes. He can also be seen on the comedy web series Game Shop. You can find it online at youtube.com slash start. After a break, Brian K. Vaughn talks about comic book mythology. Usually, you know, when you're introduced to a comic, it's not issue number one or this fresh start. You get Amazing Spider-Man number 251 or something, and you're sort of tossed headlong into this fully formed universe. I was just so fascinated by it. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and PRI. Public Radio, Art International. Jesse Thorne here, proprietor of MaximumFun.org. Look, we had a great time in the Poconos and everything, but there's no way we are forgetting about our annual trip to Lake Arrowhead here in Southern California. So, unless the world ends first by Mayan prophecy, Max FunCon West will be held May 31st through June 2nd, 2013. Join us for a showcase of elite stand-up comedy performers in the woods, plus informative classes and talks from some of the best creative minds in the nation. If you've been to Max FunCon before, get ready to reunite with your old friends. And if you're a first-timer, get ready to make a whole ton of new ones. Registration is now open at MaxFunCon.com. So act fast. MaxFunCon pretty much always sells out, and we don't expect this year to be any different. Remember, go to MaxFunCon.com. Hey, folks, this is Kevin Allison of The State and the podcast Risk, where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. Risk is the latest addition to the roster of podcasts at Maximum Fun, and it is jam-packed with unforgettable stuff. Your favorite writers, comedians, even fans like you share X-rated stories, outrageously hilarious stories, tear-jerking stories. You won't believe how real and raw and surprising Risk can be. Both radio-style stories and stories told at our live shows You've heard people say, ooh, too much information. Don't be sharing that in mixed company. Well, at risk, we say screw that. Anything goes. So you've got a treasure trove of jaw-dropping entertainment to dig into, my friend. Look us up at MaximumFun.org or Risk-Show.com. Or, of course, just go to podcast at the iTunes store and search for Risk. Risk! It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you think comic books are the home of broad characters and even broader allegory, Brian K. Vaughn begs to differ. He's built his career writing knowable human characters into extraordinary situations. His comics are as funny and intimate as they are exciting and inventive. 
His signature work is probably Why the Last Man, the story of a young man and his monkey who live in a contemporary America where an unknown plague has killed every single male but him. His comic Ex Machina was about a superhero who becomes mayor of New York in the wake of September 11th. His Marvel book The Runaways was about a group of super teens who realize their parents are supervillains and are forced to fight them. After a few years in Hollywood working on Lost, among other projects, Vaughn's back in the comics game with a new series called Saga. It's a domestic drama about a couple that is literally star-crossed. Their alien races are in the midst of a war that's consuming their entire galaxy. In the very first panels, they have a child, and the comics tell the story of their efforts to protect her. Brian K. Vaughn, it's great to have you on Bullseye. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Could you describe... Those that that first panel of saga, and you you can use you can use the language. Oh, we'll, we'll bleep out the language. Great. Well, yeah. Saga opens with uh, we just see a woman uh, drenched in sweat, and uh, the first lines of the book are, uh, "Am I shitting? It feels like I'm shitting." <laughs> and uh, the sort of uh, narrator is saying, uh, "This is how ideas are born." I won't say whether or not that moment was inspired by my own first child and experience in the delivery room, but I did think as I was having a a kid and there's sort of uh, all of this stuff coming out from everywhere that this is really – having a child is a lot like, you know, creating an idea. So this is what Saga is about, is about the the act of creation, whether you're making a baby or a work of art and how difficult it is to bring something new into the universe – did you always love comic books? Oh, yeah. There was a guy named Al, still is a guy named Al, who owns his store called Al's Comics in San Francisco. And I remember, even as, I mean, I would read comic books. I still probably have in my mom's closet somewhere several bo- big boxes full of comics. But it still seemed like an impenetrable, crazy world to me. I because I know most people do that usually, you know, when you're introduced to a comic, it's not issue number one or this fresh start. You get Amazing Spider-Man number 251 or something, and you're sort of tossed headlong into this fully formed universe. And a lot of people find it very off-putting. And I guess I was just so fascinated by it. And I just wanted to know all of the history that had come before and everything that would happen afterwards. Uh, It was really appealing to me, but I'm weird. The the first uh the first Marvel comic that you wrote uh, or that you got exclusive credit for was uh this guy named uh is was it Carl Kazar I believe you're looking for Jesse <laughs> sort of a bargain basement Tarzan knockoff Kazar yes of the Savage Land okay so what can you bring to a story about Kazar of the Savage Land. A guy who, as a as a kid, I read many a Marvel comic sure. book. When I saw that name, I had to type <laughs> it into Google to see what the hell it was. Yeah. What could I bring to it? It was not very much. But uh, I remember I met Neil Gaiman, who's the author who does uh, Sandman. Uh, that's probably what he's best known for. But when I was just starting to break in or trying to break into comics, I met him. And I asked, what advice do you have for young creators? And he said, well, get published as quickly as you can because nothing will make you a better writer faster than knowing that absolute strangers are reading your total garbage. And uh, that was the benefit of Kazar's, just sort of getting something out there and having the opportunity. You know, because before that, I sort of had the safety of you share scripts with your friends or in a classroom or something. It's very safe. But I just sort of needed to get published and get something out there and just be horrified. And at first, you know, it's the thrill of seeing your name on a Marvel comic is exciting. But then you sort of read it months after you had written it, and I just wanted to knock it out of people's hands at the comic book store and be like, no, it's no good, please. I can't imagine what a challenge it must be to write for a character, characters like, say, the X-Men. Um, because not only because of the thing that you've described, which is someone else created it, but you are servicing this world of established things and expectations and then trying to find something that you can introduce that will make the whole thing interesting. Yeah, and I did find early on I preferred working on the weird characters like Kazar over Spider-Man and the X-Men and the characters that I love because I felt 
I don't have as much to add. I'm never going to write a better Spider-Man story than Stan Lee. But give me some sort of forgotten character that no one else wants to write, that their people aren't really paying attention to, and that's where I was happiest. Um, one of the first big characters that you created, or a a group of the first big characters that you created, was was this group called the Runaways. Um, it, it's funny to me that you have this new comic called Saga that is about parenting. You know, it, it is about the sort of primal urge to protect and care for your children is the driving force of this comic. And Runaways was about a bunch of teens trying to kill their parents. That's right. Yeah, I was always fascinated by, it seems like comic book characters, heroes, the only good parent is a dead parent. Like, you know, Bruce Wayne's parents are dead and Peter Parker's parents are dead and Superman's real parents are dead. And I was wondering if those parents had stayed alive would Batman, instead of mourning these people at the cemetery, would he just be a brat who's yelling at them all the time and complaining about how awful they are? And so I sort of wanted to do, yeah, sort of a subversive Marvel book that said, yeah, what if you found out that your parents were actually supervillains? What would you do? And yeah, I think it was, I, I was still relatively young. I was probably 19 or 20 when I started that. And I'm sure angry about my parents and the world. And yeah, so Saga is sort of comeuppance for that, where now instead of writing parents as the villain, I am now the sellout old man writing about parents being the good guys. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Brian K. Vaughn, is well known as one of the world's great comic book writers. His works include the beloved Why the Last Man and Ex Machina, his new comic, a beautiful space opera about parenting, is called Saga. One of the interesting things about uh, Saga to me is that in contrast to writing most superhero comics where they live in the world of that superhero comic, and that is one of the most important elements, especially the way that superhero comics work these days where um, the companies that make them are financially driven by huge crossover things that tie together all the storylines from all the different stuff. And it's basically a way of, you know, uh, servicing people who are emotionally connected to the idea of completism. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know what I mean? People who are really into uh, something of verses. Um, and, and in Saga, you get to play that game yourself where every little thing that happens you can see it create you can see it sort of tesserating in people's minds and becoming its own part of the world sure i mean it was the magic of seeing star wars you know uh when i was young is that you know you're telling a self-contained story but every tiny nook and cranny of the universe felt like it could be its own story that you would want to follow. I just, I really admired that world building so much. The conflict in Saga is all-encompassing. Maybe you could describe what the sure. war is in the book. Yeah, well, it's hard to describe because the the sort of people involved in it don't even remember what started the war. But there's something going on between the largest planet in the galaxy and its only moon, the sort of magical moon. And the moon has uh, people with horns, and they practice magic. And this big planet has people with wings, and they're sort of more of a technological world. And all we know is that they despise each other and have despised each other for generations. And their war has sort of spilled out beyond these two worlds into sort of proxy wars that have overtaken the whole universe. And our protagonists are two characters who fall in love despite their differences and decide, you know what, maybe this war is just complete nonsense. And I didn't want to do a story about this is not a plucky rebellion who's going to bring down some empire. These people are not vital to this war. They're just sort of um, conscientious objectors who have decided, let's get out of this nonsense. The interesting thing to me about this war is that it it is, as you said, fought via proxy. And in fact, it is bounded one of the odd things about the structure of this war is that the two sides have agreed to contain it within specific places in order to prevent their own annihilation, but as it turns out, sort of hasten the annihilation of these other places. Which is, uh, I think, probably something that's really going on in the world right now. And it's sort of hard to talk about when you come at it sort of dead on 
And uh, yeah, I think it's much easier to sort of talk about the war on terror or our complicated relationship with Saudi Arabia when you mix in dragons and ray guns. At least for me, that's what I found. So one of the characters, basically this is a sort of classic story of um, these parents have this child who is interspecies or interracial or whatever. I don't know what it counts if it's two groups of aliens. Um, But this child is being pursued by all sides, including the father's armies, the mother's armies, bounty hunters and this third set of people who look like they're from a, like a residence video. (laughs) They're robot people with television heads. Um, In fact, the one who in particular, who's coming after them is named Prince robot. The fourth. That's right. Um, Can you tell me about this guy dresses like the, if he, if I was going to describe what he reminds me of, it would probably be like those, um, uh, those Middle Eastern princes that compete in dressage competitions <laughs> in the Olympics or play international polo or something like that. Yeah, that's uh, that sounds about right. But he has a giant TV for a head. Yes, but with a TV for a head. Yeah, I knew, you know, I uh, I love science fiction, but I, I wanted to do a very accessible story that even though it's so bizarre and far out that it was really grounded in reality and you would be able to sort of very quickly understand this story. So I just wanted real simple iconography. So like I said, if we have one side, uh, they have horns. They could be all different kinds of horns, antlers, devil horns, whatever. And the other side has wings, could be insect wings or whatever. And then I knew we wanted to have our robots. And I guess perhaps it's coming from working in television, but I just like the idea that anytime you would meet a robot, they have sort of a different kind of television for a head is just a visual shorthand. But also there's just something terrifying about looking into that blank screen, I suppose. So, um, yeah, I also wanted to write about robots sort of as a ruling class since we only ever see sort of robots as slaves or indentured servants. I thought in our world it would be interesting if we sort of flip that and our, our robots are, like I say, high-ranking officials in this world. And like fancy too. Oh, they're fancy, yes. Vaguely British too. But, uh, yeah, you know, in the first issue uh, of Saga we have – sort of graphic robot sex and uh, just hideous acts of violence. But really the only complaints that I heard were at one point uh, a character's talking about his phone auto-updating an app or someone is going to an ATM. And a lot of readers are are really wildly alarmed by that, that there's some rule that you can't in science fiction and fantasy, you can have things like kings and princes or characters can go to bars, but you can't have something feel like it's too much from our world. But I love that. I like uh, sort of pressing readers' buttons, and I like pulling people out of stories. That I always hear people say, oh, I hated that moment. It took me out of the story. But I like periodically to remind you that well, you were reading a story and think about sort of how this is, you know, uh, compares to our world. You also seem really committed to setting up these big, complicated systems and then just making that the background of the work that you're doing. I mean, my favorite war movie is Casablanca. That feels like what I hope to do with saga is something in that vein in that the war is vitally important to the story. We know that it's going on in the background. And yet this is still, you know, a, a romance that what's in the foreground is a very intimate story between two people. And I think there's a reason that so many great sweeping love stories are set during wars, because there's something, you know, is for all the you know truth about war being hell, it's also kind of sexy because the stakes are so unimaginably high. You know, people are going to lose their lives. What you're fighting for is vitally important. Uh, I like sort of setting that sort of small, intimate romance against that epic story. So why not just make, you know, why not just make something small? <laughs> what's what's wrong with uh, what's wrong with making a you know a, a Dan Klaus comic or something like that about uh, or Adrian Tomina comic about you know two people that meet in a coffee shop? I guess because I'm not those guys and they're so terrific at what they do, and I have never sort of been able to talk about my life head on. I guess it's uh, I, I guess I've always found 
more truth talking about the world through sort of that lens of fiction, holding up that funhouse mirror to our universe. I don't know. Also, I just like ray guns and rocket ships, so (laughs) I'm not going to lie. I like that stuff. It makes it way more interesting. I mean, I could just tell you anecdotes about losing diaper bags or my kids spitting up on me, but I'd much rather weave that into a tapestry of uh, sexy robots and uh, space helicopters. Well, Brian, I I sure appreciate you taking the time to be on Bullseye. It was great to talk to you. It was an honor. Thanks, Jesse. Brian K. Vaughn is a sometime screenwriter and the author of the monthly comic book series, Saga. A collection of the first six issues of the comic is now available in bookstores. Every week on Bullseye, we close the show with a recommendation from yours truly. It's the outshot. Things have been shaky at the BBC lately. If you haven't heard, they've been caught up in a pedophilia scandal. Two, actually. Big ones. The head of the whole BBC is gone. It's a tragic situation with many victims, direct and indirect. And it's a powerful symbol of the power of the media and of the power that the greatest terrors in our lives hold over us. Actually, before I go any farther, I should mention something. I'm about to talk about a TV show about pedophilia, a comedy show specifically, and that might be objectionable to some people, so now you know. In 2001, a British fake news show called Brass Eye broadcast a special episode. It was called Pedageddon. These are our children. They skip down our streets, but the pedophile is waiting. At the time, the UK was in the midst of another explosion of pedophilia fear. A girl had been murdered by a convicted pedophile who'd been released from prison. The News of the World tabloid was publishing the names of pedophiles in its news pages. Brass Eye had just run its first series, which satirized tabloid television. I'll give you an idea of what their thing was. On one episode, their fake news show covered a drug called Cake, a drug that they had made up out of whole cloth. And producers for the show convinced a conservative member of parliament to introduce an anti-cake resolution in real-life parliament. Brass Eye, in other words, was not a show that pulled punches. But pedophilia, that you can't make jokes about, right? Well, they did. Today, the number of children having sex with adults is beyond belief. If you define a child as anyone under 30, the figure is over 86%. Though it's not quite fair to say that Brass Eye joked about pedophilia. The jokes aren't really about the act. Instead, they're about the power that that idea has in our society, the frenzy and the fear that it causes. And most of all, the media who package that frenzy and fear and sell it back to us. The comedy of Peter Geddon isn't for everyone, that's for sure, but it is satire of the highest order. At one point in the show, one of the anchors in the studio says children are being kept safe across Britain by being herded together into sports stadiums. Most stadiums are over half full now. There is a parent riot currently in Leeds, which started after a paedophile in a microlite committed an overhead perversion at Headingley Stadium. But police helicopters soon chased him into pylons where he crashed screaming like a pig in a war. In another bit, they've got British celebrities and more than one member of parliament speaking out against a type of computer game that allows pedophiles to molest children. They're called... Hidden Online Entrapment Control Systems, or for short, hoax games. We believe that paedophiles are using an area of internet the size of Ireland, and through this they can control keyboards. Online paedophiles can actually make your keyboard release toxic vapors that make you suggestible. Frankly, most of the comedy in this special is so dark, I don't even feel comfortable playing it on the show. I thought about playing one of the most brilliant and controversial bits, which actually has Simon Pegg in it, who's sort of a movie star in the United States now. But I decided it was too much, even having given the warning that I gave. But the show, it is so focused, so cutting, 
So brilliant. These writers and performers aren't taking a serious issue lightly. Quite the opposite. They're treating it with all the seriousness that it deserves. They're tearing into this enormous weight with all the force they can muster. They're trying to get to something. It's an issue so important and so powerful that normal discourse fails us. Direct address turns into a miasma of madness. Only humor can cut through the fog. Like I said, Peter Geddon isn't for everyone. But if you can handle it, it's one of the finest pieces of satire I have ever seen. If you're ready to go there, search for it online or find it on the Brass Eye DVD, which is UK only but works on any player. That's my outshot. That's it for this week's Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer, Julia Smith. Our editor, Nick White. Our intern, Lindsay Pavlis. Thanks to Paul Ruest at Argo Studios for engineering the New York side of our interview with Simon Amstel. Our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our theme music is Huddle Formation by The Go Team. Our thanks to The Go Team and their label, Memphis Industries, for letting us use that. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. Support for this program comes from this station and public radio international stations nationwide and is made possible in part by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the Ford Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. PRI Public Radio International.